The Anxious Bench by the Reverend John Williamson Nevin Chapter 6 The system of the bench tends to disorder, connects itself readily with a vulgar and irreverent style in religion, women praying in public, influence unfavorable to deep, earnest piety, relation of the system to that of the catechism, The anxious bench tends naturally to disorder. Where any considerable excitement prevails, it is almost impossible for the measure to be applied without confusion and commotion. It is common indeed to have it said, in the accounts given afterwards of such occasions, that they were conducted in a quiet and orderly way. But the true idea of quiet and order is apt not to be understood. For it not unfrequently happens that these accounts themselves, in close connection with such a statement, present evidence sufficient to show it not strictly correct. Some appear to think that there is no disorder at such times unless it comes to loud noise and gross confusion in the style of the Methodists. But the proper order of the sanctuary may be seriously unsettled long before it has gone so far as this. The measure involves irregularity to some extent in its very nature and opens the way for extravagance. It is always ready accordingly to run into disorder. It leads naturally, if encouraged, to more striking deviations from the line of Christian sobriety. It forms the threshold properly to the whole system of new measures. We may pretend to draw a line between it and other more noisy and disorderly forms of action, but the line will be an arbitrary one, separating things that, after all, are inwardly related. The general principle of the anxious bench and its proper soul are substantially the principle and soul of the entire system to which it belongs. Let it be considered orderly and edifying to call out the anxious in this way, and why should they not be encouraged as well to surround the altar on their knees or to lay themselves down in token of their humiliation in the dust? If one measure of irregularity and noise may be allowed on the principle that we should give room to the Spirit, why should not a larger amount of the same be tolerated on the same plea? Should man enforce decent silence, asks the editor of the Lutheran Observer, in view of a scene where crushed sinners, it is said, prostrate upon their knees, lay scattered around the altar, the females in one group and the males in another, and the united tones of all together reminded him of the noise of many waters? Should man enforce decent silence when God's power had produced strong crying and tears? Should we prescribe limits to the workings of divine grace and say to the swelling waves of overwhelming contrition, Thus far shall ye come and no further? The apology was intended to cover only a certain measure of noise and confusion but it is of sufficient breadth plainly for any extent of extravagance we may be pleased to imagine. The most frantic discipline of Weinbrenner could ask no more to justify his greatest outrages on common decency and common sense. 
screaming, shouting, jumping, tumbling, and in one word, the whole wildfire of fanaticism, including the holy laugh and the holy grin, might be vindicated in the same way. Only let persons persuade themselves that the power of God within them must reveal itself in this style, and all becomes at once rational and right. For there are diversities of operations, and it should be remembered that rules of propriety are conventional and often very arbitrary things, and so is taste. What is thought decent in one community may be deemed very disorderly in another. What is grating discord to one ear may be charming concord to another. Even Mr. Weinbrenner himself, when interrogated on the subject of noise, only answers, What is from heaven I approve of, but what is from men I disapprove of. Though he goes on immediately to sanction loud groaning, crying, shouting, clapping of hands, jumping, falling down, etc., as forms in which a divine influence may be expected at times to work. Still, he has no inclination to justify all sorts of noise and bodily exercises. The truth is, as already said, that no satisfactory stopping place can be found in the system of new measures. It has a life and spirit of its own that begin to be developed in the simple anxious bench and naturally flow onward from that point to the very worst excesses. Good men may try to hold the stream in check, some at one point and some at another, but it will not consent to be held within the limits imposed upon it by their sense of propriety. It claims to have its origin in heaven, and who in such case shall presume to say to it, Thus far shalt thou come, but no farther, and here shall thy proud waves be stayed. As the spirit of the anxious bench tends to disorder, so it connects itself also naturally and readily with a certain vulgarism of feeling in religion that is always injurious to the worship of God and often shows itself absolutely irreverent and profane. True religious feeling is inward and deep, shrinks from show, forms the mind to a subdued, humble habit. The language of experience is, says one whose word should have weight, that it is unsafe and unwise to bring persons who are under religious impressions too much into public view. The seed of the word, like the natural seed, does not vegetate well in the sun. We may say then that there is a measure of rudeness connected with this particular style of action in the church from the very nature of the case. It is a wrong feeling in this respect that makes it seem desirable at all that awakened persons should be dragged thus theatrically into public view, and the process is well suited to generate wrong feelings under the same form in those who are subjected to its rough operation. The circumstances of such an occasion are by no means favorable to true inward solemnity, such as causes the heart to exclaim, How awful is this place! High excitement always tends to destroy men's reverence for God and sacred things, 
And so this high-pressure system, as it is sometimes called, in proportion as it prevails, is always found to work. It gives rise to a style of preaching which is often rude and coarse, as well as uncommonly vapid, and creates an appetite for such false aliment with a corresponding want of taste for true and solid instruction. All is made to tell upon the one single object of effect. The pulpit is transformed, more or less, into a stage. Divine things are so popularized as to be at last shorn of their dignity as well as their mystery. Anecdotes and stories are plentifully retailed, often in low, familiar, flippant style. Roughness is substituted for strength and paradox for point. The preacher feels himself and is bent on making himself felt also by the congregation. But God is not felt in the same proportion. In many cases, self-will and mere human passion, far more than faith or true zeal for the conversion of souls, preside over the whole occasion. Coarse personalities and harsh denunciations and changes rung rudely on terms the most sacred and things the most solemn betray the wrong spirit that prevails. But to see the character of the system in the aspect now considered, fully disclosed, we must look at it again in its more advanced positions where the genius that animates it is permitted to work with full scope. Here the so-called awakening on the campground or at the quarterly meeting is often presented under a form that is absolutely shocking to a truly serious mind. Noise and confusion unite to overwhelm every right sentiment in the soul. Decency and order are given to the winds. A dozen, perhaps, are heard praying at once in all unseemly postures and with the most violent gestures. And then, the form and spirit of these prayers, as far as they can be heard. What rude familiarity with the High and Holy One! What low belittling and caricaturing of all that is grand in the gospel! What gross profanity in the style of many of the petitions, with which it is pretended to storm the citadel of God's favors! The atmosphere of such a meeting may be exciting, intoxicating, bewildering, but it has no power whatever to dispose the mind to devotion. There is nothing in the scene to impress these who are present with the sense of God's awful, heart-searching presence. Very frequently, while such a chaos of prayer is going forward in full strength at one end of the house, the lookers-on at the other show themselves as much at their ease and betray as little emotion as though they were sitting in a bar room. They have grown obtuse to the stirring show and feel themselves in no connection with what is going forward, except as they find an opportunity from time to time to fall in with the catch of some familiar revival song, which they shout forth as boisterously as anybody else. Fanaticism has no power to make God's presence felt. It is wild, presumptuous, and profane, 
where it affects to partake most largely of the power of heaven. No wonder that the religion which is commenced and carried forward under such auspices should show itself to be characteristically coarse and gross. Wanting true reverence for God, it will be without true charity also towards men. It is likely to be narrow, intolerant, sinister, and rabidly sectarian. All that is high will become low, and all that is beautiful be turned into vulgarity in its hands. One striking illustration of the coarseness of this spirit is found in the disposition it has shown in all ages to set aside the rule which forbids women to speak publicly in religious assemblies. Nature itself may be said to teach us that woman cannot quit her sphere of relative subordination with regard to man without dishonoring herself and losing her proper strength. And it is no small argument for the divine origin of the gospel that while it teaches the absolute personal equality of the sexes as it had never been understood before, it still echoes, while it rightly interprets, the voice of nature with regard to this point. I suffer not a woman to teach, says the apostle, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And again, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. It is a shame for a woman to speak in the church. True religion supports this judgment. No female, with the gospel in her heart, can wish to have it reversed. She would feel her nature wronged, rather, in being required to appear in the way here forbidden before the public. But of such delicacy no account is made by the fanatical temper now under consideration. It is coarse and vulgar, and would fain show itself wiser at this point than Paul himself. It encourages women to pray in public, and to address promiscuous meetings, and by the spirit it infuses makes them willing to unsex themselves in this way. There can be no surer sign of grossness and coarseness in religion than a disposition to tolerate this monstrous perversion under any form. The general system to which the anxious bench belongs, it may be remarked again, is unfavorable to deep, thorough, and intelligent piety. This must be the case, of course, if there be any truth in the observations already made with regard to its character. A system that leads to such a multitude of spurious conversions, and that makes room so largely for that low, gross, fanatical habit which has just been described, cannot possibly be associated to any extent with the power of godliness in its deeper and more earnest forms. The religion which it may produce, so far as it can be counted genuine, will be for the most part of a dwarfish size and sickly complexion. The experience of the anxious bench is commonly shallow. The friends of the new method often please themselves, it is true, with the idea that their awakenings include a vast amount of power in this way, and they are not backward to insinuate that those who oppose their measures are ignorant of what pertains to the depths of experimental piety. 
Were such persons themselves experimentally acquainted with the pangs of the new birth, it is intimated, they would not be so easily offended with the noise and disorder of poor souls agonizing at the altar. And if they had ever themselves tasted the joys of pardoned sin, they might be expected to have other ears than they now have for the shouts and hallelujahs of the redeemed, suddenly translated in these circumstances from the power of Satan into the glorious liberty of the family of God. But in fact, no experiences are more superficial commonly than those which belong to this whirlwind process. The foundations of the inward life are not reached and moved by it at all. All that would be wanted often to hush an altar full of chaotic cries to solemn stillness would be that the hearts of the agonizing mourners should be suddenly touched with some real sense of the presence of God and their own sins. I have heard of thee, says Job, with the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, whereof I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. Alas, it is not the depth of these anxious bench and camp-meeting conversions, but their utter want of depth that exposes them to complaint. They involve little or nothing of what the old divines call heart work. They bring with them no self-knowledge. They fill the church with lean professors who show subsequently but little concern to grow in grace, little capacity indeed to understand at all the free, deep, full life of the new man in Christ Jesus. Such converts, if they do not altogether fall from grace, are apt to continue at least babes in the gospel as long as they live. The natural fruit of the system is a sickly Christianity that is sure to be defective or one-sided, both in doctrine and practice. It proceeds upon a wrong conception of religion from the start, and error and heresy in the nature of the case are wrought plentifully into the very texture of all that is reached by its operations. There is involved in it a spirit of delusion which cannot fail to show its power disastrously after a short time in any community in which it is suffered to prevail. Here is another most serious charge demanding our special attention. I have denominated the system a heresy, not inconsiderately or for rhetorical effect simply, but with sober calculation and design. In religion, as in life universally, Theory and practice are always inseparably intertwined in the ground of the soul. Every error is felt practically, and whatever obliquity in conduct comes into view, it must be referred to some corresponding obliquity in principle. It is not by accident, then, that the system of new measures is found producing so largely the evil consequences which have thus far been described. Error and heresy, I repeat it, are involved in the system itself and cannot fail sooner or later where it is encouraged to evolve themselves in the most mischievous results. 
Finneyism is only Taylorism reduced to practice, the speculative heresy of New Haven actualized in common life. A low, shallow, Pelagianizing theory of religion runs through it from beginning to end. The fact of sin is acknowledged, but not in its true extent. The idea of a new spiritual creation is admitted, but not in its proper radical and comprehensive form. The ground of the sinner's salvation is made to lie at last in his own separate person. The deep import of the declaration, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, is not fully apprehended, and it is vainly imagined accordingly that the flesh as such may be so stimulated and exalted notwithstanding as to prove the mother of that spiritual nature which we are solemnly assured can be born only of the Spirit. Hence, all stress is laid upon the energy of the individual will, the self-will of the flesh, for the accomplishment of the great change in which regeneration is supposed to consist. The case is not remedied at all by the consideration that due account is made at the same time professedly of the aids of God's Spirit as indispensable in the work of conversion. The heresy lies involved in the system. This is so constructed as naturally, and in time inevitably, to engender false views of religion. Sometimes the mere purpose to serve God in the same form with a resolution to sign a temperance pledge is considered to be the ground of regeneration. At other times, it is made to stand in a certain state of feeling, supposed to be of supernatural origin, but apprehended notwithstanding mechanically, as the result of a spiritual process which begins and ends with the sinner himself. The experience of the supposed supernatural in this case stands in the same relation to the actual power of the new birth that magic bears to the true idea of a miracle. The higher force does not strictly and properly take possession of the lower, but is presumed rather to have been reduced to the possession and service of this last, to be used by it for its own convenience. Religion does not get the sinner, but it is the sinner who gets religion. Justification is taken to be in fact by feeling, not by faith, and in this way falls back as fully into the sphere of self-righteousness as though it were expected from works under any other form. In both the views which have been mentioned, as grounded either in a change of purpose or a change of feeling, religion is found to be in the end the product properly of the sinner himself. It is wholly subjective, and therefore visionary and false. The life of the soul must stand in something beyond itself. Religion involves the will, but not as self-will, affecting to be its own ground and center. Religion involves feeling, but it is not comprehended in this as its principle. Religion is subjective also, fills and rules the individual in whom it appears but it is not created in any sense by its subject or from its subject. The life of the branch is in the trunk. The theory we have been contemplating, then, 
as included practically in the system of new measures, is a great and terrible heresy, which it is to be feared is operating in this connection to deceive and destroy a vast multitude of souls. The proper fruits of Pelagianism follow the system invariably, in proportion exactly to the extent in which it may be suffered in any case to prevail. A roost ample field for instruction with regard to this point, for all who care to receive instruction, is presented in the history of the great religious movement over which Mr. Finney presided some years ago in certain parts of this country. Years of faithful pastoral service on the part of a different order of ministers working in a wholly different style have hardly yet sufficed in the northern section of the state of New York to restore to something like spiritual fruitfulness and beauty the field over which this system then passed as a wasting fire in the fullness of its strength. The perfectionism of Oberlin with its low conceptions of the law of God, is but a natural development of the false life with which it is animated. The wide west abounds in every direction with illustrations of its mischievous action under all imaginable forms. In many places, a morbid thirst for excitement may be said to exhaust the whole interest that is felt in religion. The worst errors stand in close juxtaposition with the most bold pretensions to the highest order of Christian experience. All might seem to begin in the spirit, and yet all is perpetually ending in the flesh. It were an easy thing, too, to gather exemplifications supporting the same lesson from the past history of the church. For the system, properly speaking, is not new. The same theory of religion has led, in all ages, to substantially the same style of action, and this has been followed by substantially the same bad fruits. The question of new measures, then, as it claims at this time particularly the attention of the German churches, is one of much greater importance than some might be disposed to imagine. The truth is, this system, as we have said, has a life and spirit of its own. It may be associated to some extent, in certain hands, with the power of a more vigorous life derived from a different quarter, so as to seem comparatively sound and safe. But it ought not to be thought, on this account, that it may be incorporated practically with one order of thinking on the subject of religion as easily as with another. It is not by accident only that it is found connecting itself with the faults and defects that have now been mentioned. A false theory of religion is involved in it, which cannot fail to work itself out and make itself felt in many hurtful results wherever it gains footing in the church. No religious community can grow and prosper in a solid way where it is allowed to have any considerable authority because it will always stand in the way of those deeper and more silent forms of action, by which alone it is possible for this end to be accomplished. It is a different system altogether that is required to build up the interests of Christianity in a firm and sure way.
a ministry apt to teach, sermons full of unction and light, faithful, systematic instruction, zeal for the interests of holiness, pastoral visitation, catechetical training, due attention to order and discipline, patient perseverance in the details of the ministerial work. These are the agencies by which alone the kingdom of God may be expected to go steadily forward among any people. Where these are fully employed, there will be revivals, but they will be only as it were the natural fruit of the general culture going before, without that spasmodic, meteoric character which too often distinguishes excitements under this name, while the life of religion will show itself abidingly at work in the reigning temper of the church at all other times. Happy the congregation that may be placed under such spiritual auspices. Happy for our German Zion, if such might be the system that should prevail to the exclusion of every other within her borders. We may style it, for distinction's sake, the system of the catechism. It is another system wholly from that which we have been contemplating in this tract. We find the attempt made in some cases, it is true, to incorporate the power of the catechism with the use of new measures. But the union is unnatural and can never be inward and complete. The two systems involve at the bottom two different theories of religion. The spirit of the anxious bench is at war with the spirit of the catechism. Where it comes decidedly to prevail, catechetical instruction and the religious training of the young generally are not likely to be maintained with much effect, and it will not be strange if they should be openly slighted even and thrust out of the way as an encumbrance to the gospel rather than a help. What is wrought in the way of the catechism is considered to be of man. What is wrought by the bench is taken readily for the work of God. And the reason of this is near at hand. The catechism is indeed weak in the hands of those who have this judgment. They have no inward power to make themselves felt in this way. But they seem to have power in the use of the bench and it is no wonder they should magnify it accordingly. The systems are antagonistic. Particular men, standing under one standard, may be to some extent entangled in views and practices properly belonging to the other, but so far they must be inconsistent with themselves. Each system, as such, has its own life and soul, in virtue of which it cannot truly coalesce with the other. They cannot flourish and be in vigorous force together. The bench is against the catechism, and the catechism against the bench. I mean, of course, not the catechism as a mere dead form, in the way in which the original order of the church has been too often abused, and it is silly, if not something worse, to insist upon this view of it, when the two systems are drawn into contrast, as though there could be no other alternative to the bench than the catechism without life. It is the living catechism, the catechism awakened and active, that is intended in this opposition. As such, 
It stands the representative and symbol of a system embracing its own theory of religion and including a wide circle of agencies peculiar to itself for carrying this theory into effect. These agencies, in the pulpit and out of it, will be understood and honored and actively applied in proportion exactly as the spirit of the system may prevail, and in the same proportion the Christianity of the Church may be expected to show itself large, deep, full, vigorous, and free. Between such a Christianity and that which is the product of the bench, there can be no comparison, and it must be counted an immense misfortune in the case of any religious denomination when the views, feelings, and forms of action that are represented by this through the force of a perverse judgment gain such ground as to push the other system aside. It must ever be a wretched choice when the bench is preferred to the catechism.